We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. And away we go, episode 22 of the Al Galdi podcast. It is Monday, March 22nd, 2021. Hope you had a nice weekend as we embark upon a work week in which it's supposed to feel like spring. Well, it now technically is spring. That officially began on Saturday, and we are supposed to be rolling with temperatures in the 60s and 70s this week. This is how it's supposed to be. You know, the weather up until a few days ago had been brutal. Here in the D.C. area lately. It felt like November. Uh, that's now finally, mercifully, in the midst of changing. Like spring to me, it's not unlike NFL free agency. Like, yeah, the whole thing may not officially start until a certain date. But that doesn't mean that you can't have, say, a legal tempering period before that date. We basically did not have our legal tempering period for spring this year. We had to have every last drop of winter shoved down our throats before spring officially got going. But we made it. We are here and we are together again. What an NCAA tournament we have had so far. More shockers on Sunday. Eight-seeded Loyola of Chicago. The fighting sister jeans knocking off one-seeded Illinois. 11-seeded Syracuse knocking off three-seeded West Virginia. 15-seeded Oral Roberts, knocking off seven-seeded Florida. 12-seeded Oregon State, knocking off four-seeded Oklahoma State. Seeding means nothing. It is totally irrelevant. This is the NCAA tournament, right? One and done. Neutral sites. Up is down. Left is right. Nothing makes any sense. Oh, how we missed this last year. It's like the college basketball gods have decreed we must have two years worth of chaos to make up for having no NCAA tournament in 2020. The uh, the madness has been especially mad 
But it's been a lot of fun, although I guess we do have to acknowledge this now. Uh, part of the madness uh, ended up being a terrible weekend for area teams in the tournament. Well, I guess all of the area teams except one, as we have a monster game for 10-seeded Maryland against two-seeded Alabama late night on Monday. I'll get into that shortly, as well as, yes, Georgetown, Virginia, and Virginia Tech all losing in the first round, and VCU not even playing. How bad was the first round for our area team, save for Maryland? One team didn't even play. That's how bad the first round uh, ended up being. It was a mostly quiet weekend for the Washington football team from a news standpoint, but that doesn't mean we don't have Washington football team stuff to talk about on this Monday podcast. Uh, the Giants signed Kenny Galladay. Would you rather have Kenny Galladay at $18 million per year or Curtis Samuel at $11.5 million? per year. Uh, I know my answer. I'll give it to you in a bit, as well as uh, discussing the most notable things that Samuel and William Jackson III had to say at their introductory Zoom press conferences on Monday. It was a mixed weekend for the Capitals. We had another loss for the Wizards on Sunday night. The Nationals and Orioles, they have named their opening day starters, though the Nats bullpen, and stop me if you've heard this before, emerging as a concern. We had some troubling health news for Will Harris on Friday. Get into all of that as the podcast progresses. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. So there was, by the way, some NFL news on Sunday night of relevance to us as Washington football team fans. No, we did not have another installment of Late Night with Ron Rivera, but we did have this, the Los Angeles Rams agreeing on a deal with unrestricted free agent receiver Deshaun Jackson. Yes, Deshaun reuniting with Sean McVay. It's a one-year deal. Clearly, you're fortifying things for Matthew Stafford. The Rams could be a ton of fun to watch in 2021. We'll see. But you know McVay loves to cook with all kinds of weapons on offense. And Deshaun is going to be a very nice weapon to make usage of. Deshaun, of course, released by the Philadelphia Eagles recently. The Rams are going to be his third team in four seasons, you know, he's becoming a bit of a journeyman, Deshaun is, right? He was with Washington for three years, 2014 through 2016. Then he went to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for 2017 and 2018. Then back to his original team, the Eagles, 2019 and 2020. And now with the Rams for 2021. And the truth is this, Deshaun is not what he used to be. He's missed a ton of time the last few years due to injury. He ended up playing for the Eagles over these last two seasons, a mere eight games. That's it. Uh, total just 23 receptions over those eight games in two seasons in stint number two with the Eagles. But, you know, I had to laugh reading about this Deshaun signing with the Rams, looking at some stuff with Deshaun before I got going with the show here on this Monday, because while he's done basically nothing over the last two years, of course, it was against our team that he did a whole lot of something. In fact, in his first game back with the Eagles, right? Week one, 2019 season, that 32-27 Washington loss at the Eagles, a game in which Washington blew a 17-0 second quarter lead. And Deshaun, in that game, eight catches for 154 yards and two touchdowns on 10 targets. So eight of his 23 catches over the last two seasons came in just one game, what was a Washington loss at the Eagles week one of the 2019 season. But what I always remember about that game is the first touchdown bomb that Deshaun caught because he caught two bombs in that game. There was a second quarter, third and 10, 51-yard touchdown reception for Deshaun. There was a third quarter, third and 10, 53-yard touchdown reception for Deshaun. The first of those two came 
on, yes, you guessed it, Josh Norman. And what I'll always remember about this is D'Angelo Hall on a podcast the day after this game, basically trying to teach Josh Norman how to play corner. I mean, here you had Josh Norman, right? Veteran corner, making $15 million per year, called out by Jay Gruden in the previous offseason for not having truly earned the money in recent seasons. And D'Angelo Hall on a podcast, he's talking about how he wants to teach Norman how to play bail coverage. And I remember when that came out, and, you know, there was a bit of a history between Hall and Norman because D. Hall in 2018, as you may remember, had called Norman Hollywood, and that became kind of a thing. But, like, the fact that here we were with Norman, he gets scorched by Deshaun opening game of the season, right? But then, like, the fact that a guy like Hall, who whatever you want to say about him, I mean, D. Hall knows his stuff. And he's talking about, he's basically giving Norman a tutorial on a podcast, basically saying, I just want to teach him how to play bail coverage. It's like, why doesn't Norman know that? Why isn't he being taught this by his coaches already? Like, it just really reeked of, man, this is not really the way things are supposed to be. Uh, now is it? And of course, the season ended up getting a whole lot worse uh, beyond that. But anyway, Deshaun joining McVay, joining Stafford, joining a Rams pass casting core, right, that already included the likes of Robert Woods and Cooper Cup. Going to be interesting to see the impact that Deshaun has on the Rams, just like it will be interesting to see the impact Curtis Samuel has on our Washington football team. Lots more on Samuel in just a bit. But first, huge game on this Monday night for the Fighting Turgeons. So you can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I got this email from Michael King. Hey, Galdi, I am watching games on Saturday in DVR delay. That's the best way to watch sports these days, Michael. Uh, he continues, 45-44, Alabama over Iona. Don't know how it works out. Terps are playing right now, but we will get to that later. But the Terps won't do it, but no matter what happens, Maryland should hire Patino, as in Rick Patino, from Iona tomorrow. They, of course, don't have the stones to do it because really Maryland is terrified of their potential and how great they could be at basketball, but they should do it. Get a great coach on the relative cheap in order for him to get back to Power 5 basketball. Hire Rick Patino tomorrow. Thank you, Michael, for that email. And I begin our Maryland basketball segment with that email because that, in a nutshell, captures where so many fans are, heck, where the director of athletics may well be for Maryland when it comes to Mark Turgeon. Mark Turgeon, you could argue, has done the best coaching job of his 10 seasons as Terrapin's head coach this season. And yet Mark Turgeon, you could argue, may well be coaching for his job tonight against Alabama. I know that sounds so dramatic. I know that sounds like, what are you talking about? But yeah, the director of athletics, Damon Evans, has been noncommittal about Mark Turgeon's future in recent weeks. Now, Turgeon has multiple seasons left on a contract extension that he signed all the way back in October 2016. But we all know how this works in college sports. If you're not under contract for, say, three, four years to come in college basketball, it's almost like you might as well not be under contract because with recruiting, you want your coach under contract. You don't want other schools to be able to negatively recruit against you from a standpoint of saying, well, you don't want to go there. They don't even have their coach locked up beyond the next year or two. You know, you go there, your coach is going to get fired, and then what are you going to do? You know, so it's like you're either all in on your coach or you need to get out. And there has been discussion of, well, 
If Maryland doesn't extend Turgeon after this season, what does that say about Maryland's commitment to Turgeon? And if you're not committed to Turgeon, then why continue on with Turgeon? You know, if a firing or a departure is inevitable, it might as well be imminent. Like that's the way it's worked in college sports for a really long time. Now, do I expect Mark Turgeon to be out as Maryland head coach after this season? Right now, no, I don't. I wouldn't say that I do. But that, I, th- I think that like crystallizes kind of where we are with Turgeon. It's never been that he's done a terrible job at Maryland. Quite the contrary. He's done actually a pretty solid job. But you can't say he's done a great job. And the one thing for Turgeon, and it's the biggest knock against him, again, over his 10 seasons as Maryland coach, it's been a decade now, he's been the Terps head coach, is there hasn't been any real high achievement. Like Turgeon recently has made the NCAA tournament more often than not, but the farthest he's ever made it was the Sweet 16, just one time, and that was in 2016. That's been it. Tonight can change the perception of things. Tonight can mark true high achievement for Maryland basketball under Mark Turgeon, because tonight Maryland has a shot at two-seeded Alabama in the second round of this tournament. And while, yes, a victory over the Crimson Tide will only get Maryland to the Sweet 16, it's not like we're talking about, you know, the Elite Eight or the Final Four or anything like that. You pull this off tonight. You beat an Alabama team that is a two-seed you could argue only in name, i.e. you could certainly make the case that Bama is one-seed worthy. Turgeon has consistently referred to Bama here recently as the fifth one-seed because that's how loaded Alabama is. You pull this off. This is unequivocally the biggest win for Maryland basketball in the Mark Turgeon era. And you want to shut people up like my man, Mike? You want to stop people like Mike from writing emails like the one he sent me the other day? You pull off this win on Monday night against Bama. It is a mega showdown for Maryland basketball. If you're like me and you went to Maryland or you are at least a Terrapins fan, you really can't overstate the opportunity in front of Maryland on this Monday night with this game against Alabama. 10-seeded Terrapins, two-seeded Crimson Tide, Bankers Life Fieldhouse, the home of the Indiana Pacers in Indianapolis, set for an 845 tip. Like I said, Bama is loaded. Bama through the first round of this NCAA tournament, number one in Division One per KenPalm.com in adjusted defensive efficiency. That's points allowed per 100 possessions adjusted for opponent. Bama is literally the best defensive team in the country. And it's such an interesting story with Bama because last season, Bama was horrible defensively. Finished the year just 114th in the country in adjusted defensive efficiency. Bama is number one in the country as of the end of the first round of this tournament. Now look, Maryland is used to this. Maryland, as of the end of the first round of the tournament, had played the third toughest schedule in Division One in terms of opponents' average adjusted defensive efficiency for Kempom.com. So Maryland's been doing this all season, right? Playing in the brutal Big Ten, facing one great defensive team after another. But this is the best of the bunch, at least as things stood going into the second round. Bama, number one in the country in adjusted defensive efficiency. Bama won the SEC regular season title. Bama won the SEC tournament title. Bama defeated Iona, 68-55, in the first round of this NCAA tournament. And, you know, you don't take anything for granted right now in terms of a two-seed beating a 15-seed. It is worth noting, uh, Bama against Iona did trail eight and a half minutes into the second half at 42-40, but Bama ended up pulling away. And here's the thing with Bama stylistically, and, and this is maybe the most intriguing thing 
about Maryland-Bama on Monday night. So Maryland, as you may well know, loves to slow things down, okay? Maryland, I've said this many times, has been like infected with Big Ten-itis since joining the conference. A slow, you know, plotting style. Maryland, as of the end of the first round of this tournament, 336th in Division One per TeamRankings.com in possessions per game, okay? There just aren't many possessions per game for Maryland in its games because Maryland plays at a very slow pace. Bama is the opposite. Bama, as of the end of the first round of the tournament, 13th in Division One per TeamRankings.com in possessions per game. Also, Bama going into the second round, number one in Division One in both three-point attempts and made threes. Bama plays fast. Bama shoots a bunch of threes, okay? This great Maryland defense, and it is great, and we'll get to that in just a moment, is going to be tested on this Monday night. And you have in Bama, on the one hand, a great defensive team, but also on the other hand, a team that shoots the three without apology, without hesitation, and that plays at a rapid pace. Which team's pace is going to win out? Who's going to be able to dictate the pace better on Monday night? Slow and plotting Maryland or run and gun Alabama? It is such a fascinating game from that standpoint. So you got that to be thinking about from a Maryland standpoint. And then there's this too with Bama. Bama is loaded with talent. Bama is loaded with experience. Bama has four seniors who've each played at least 100 games. Think about that. How often in today's college basketball do you have a team like that? A team with four seniors and not just, you know, token seniors or a guy who's, you know, rode the bench for four years. Four seniors who've each played at least 100 games. And among those guys, 6'8 senior Herbert Jones, the SEC player of the year, the SEC Defensive Player of the Year. Nobody expects Maryland to win this game on Monday night, but that's just the thing. The time has come for Maryland to pull off one of these victories, right? What was Gary Williams so great at during his time as Maryland head coach? Not just winning in the NCAA tournament, but being a giant slayer, knocking off number one teams, right? We used to see that all the time in the regular season, whether it was Duke or North Carolina or whoever. Gary had a penchant. His teams had a tendency for knocking off the Giants. Here's a shot for Maryland on this Monday night to knock off a behemoth in Alabama. And this just happens to be an NCAA tournament game with an opportunity to get to the Sweet 16 for just the second time for Mark Turgeon in his 10 seasons as Maryland head coach. Now to why Maryland is playing this game on Monday night. And that is the terrific victory this past Saturday night. 10-seeded Terrapins, 63-54 win over seven-seeded UConn at Purdue's Mackey Arena in the first round of this tournament. And this was a great job by Turgeon and his team. The Terps never trailed by more than three points, led for most of the game, including the entire second half. You know, it's easy to kind of lose sight of these things when you're in the weeds and watching the game possession by possession. Maryland never trailed in that game in the second half, and it was all about the Terps' defense, okay? The Terps' defense was excellent. What has been easily Maryland's biggest strength this season was perhaps never better than what we saw on Saturday night. The Terps held UConn to 32.3% shooting, including 7-23 on threes. The Terps held UConn's top two players, James Booknight and RJ Cole, to a combined 9 of 28 shooting, including 4 of 13 on threes. And Booknight went just 2 of 6 on his free throw. So the Maryland defense was so good, it impacted Booknight at the free throw line. But seriously, we talked about this a lot going into this game. Booknight and Cole. Cole and Booknight. You know, UConn, 
guard-oriented team. Two very good guards. You know, Cole had been a great player at Howard in recent seasons. Book Knight was one of the better players in the Big East. And Maryland stifled those two guys on Saturday night. What a job on Book Knight and Cole by the Terrapins in that first round game. And maybe this captures the great defense as much as anything for Maryland on Saturday night. So the Terps got shredded on the offensive glass. Maryland is not a big team. Maryland got demolished on the offensive boards. The Terps for the game finished with four offensive rebounds to UConn's 22. It's one of the all-time disparities I've certainly ever seen in terms of offensive rebounding, especially for a winning team. Maryland was more than quintupled by UConn in offensive rebounds. Again, Terps had four offensive boards. UConn had 22. And yet, and yet, the Terps only got outscored in terms of second chance points by six at 11-5. So you got out-rebounded on the offensive glass by 18. And yet you only got outscored in terms of second chance points by six. Why was that? How did that happen? Well, the Terps defense off those UConn offensive rebounds was tremendous. And while Maryland gave it up over and over and over in terms of offensive rebounds, Maryland rebounded from giving up those offensive rebounds in fine fashion and didn't allow UConn to convert on second chance points. And I thought nothing captured this better than what we saw in the final minute of the first half. Dante Scott in the final minute of the first half had two blocks on shots off UConn offensive rebounds. And like that kind of epitomized the way Maryland responded to giving up all these offensive boards to UConn. Like UConn in the first half, because the bulk of this offensive rebounding from UConn did come in the first half. UConn in the first half had an absurd 18 offensive rebounds. I mean, it, it really was, if you, if you watch the game, you know this, but it was nuts the extent to which UConn got offensive rebounds in the first half. So first half, UConn amasses 18 offensive boards, and yet UConn at the half trailed by 11 at 33-22. I mean, UConn in the first half had nearly as many offensive rebounds as the team had points. 18 offensive rebounds, 22 points. Nothing highlights how good Maryland's defense was on Saturday night more than you gave up 18 first half offensive rebounds and yet you led at the half 33-22. Maryland also shot the ball well on Saturday night, 51.2% shooting, including nine of 18 on threes, six of eight on threes in the first half. Uh, Eric Ayala was tremendous on Saturday night, his best game as a Terrapin, and he's had some good ones, but uh, Ayala, to me, he was Maryland's MVP on Saturday night. Three of five on threes, 23 points, five rebounds, three steals. Aaron Wiggins was very good, four of six on threes, 14 points, five rebounds, two blocks. Daryl Morsell, Big Ten Defensive Player of the Year, of course, a big part of the Terps' great defense. He finished with seven points on two of five shooting, seven rebounds, and four assists versus one turnover uh, before fouling out. But that's the thing with Morsell, man. Great defense. He can give you some scoring, some rebounding, you know, four assists versus one turnover, so some playmaking. Just a tremendous job again by Morsell. And another key guy for the Terps, Hakeem Hart. So only finished with six points. But three of five shooting, five rebounds, four assists versus two turnovers. And two big buckets for Hart over the final 70 seconds of the game. He had a layup for a 59-51 Terps lead with 109 left 
off a great feed by Ayala. And Hart had a dunk for a 63-54 Terps lead with 30.4 seconds left off a pass from Wiggins as the Terps broke the UConn trap. And Hart then drew an offensive foul on UConn with 24.1 seconds left. Did then have a turnover, but some really good stuff from Hakeem Hart uh, late in the game to seal the victory. So here we are, Monday night, biggest game of the season to date. Hopefully the first of multiple biggest games of the season to come. But a real opportunity for Mark Turgeon to shut up the critics. A real opportunity for some high achievement for the Terrapins. It's not just about getting the Sweet 16. It's about pulling off this kind of a win. A win over a loaded Alabama team. A win that virtually no one is expecting you to author. But a win that in many ways could change the way people view Maryland basketball right now. And like Maryland's great defense, eliminating UConn, wiping the Huskies off the table, rendering UConn season to zero. A great friend of this podcast, John Grandland, is eliminating commissions in the real estate game. You know the deal in real estate. Commissions. Outrageous commissions have been a staple in real estate for as long as we can remember. Well, John Grandland is changing the game. My guy, John G., with Real Broker, is selling your home for free. That's right for free. From the moment you dial John's number to the last page of the paperwork signed, he is there. He handles everything. Professional photography, detailed market analysis, a huge syndication network, and so much more to ensure you are not hunting for buyers months on end. The process of selling your home does not have to be some lengthy, drawn-out saga. And when John finds you an offer and you agree on a sale, What you normally would have to pay for your listing agent, that stays right in your pocket. And John Grandling can then help you find the home of your dreams, and everyone feels right at home. Again, expansive services at the lowest commission possible, zero. John Grandland is changing the game. John G., to find out more about this program and to find your home's value, visit the website. It says it all, johngsellsforfree.com. That's John G. Sellsforfree.com. Or better yet, call John Grandland. 703-537-6747. That's 703-537-6747. John Grandland. Zero commission. Tell him Al Galdi sent you. So there perhaps has been no bigger league-wide development in NFL free agency so far than the cratering of the receiver market. You have this issue of a lot of receivers being out there coupled with a 2021 draft that is said to be loaded at receiver. So it's a classic case of more supply than demand. And so consequently, the receiver market has taken a long time to develop and some guys have gotten really humbled. I mean, how about what happened with Juju Smith-Schuster? The news on Friday that he's going back to the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Steelers announcing the re-signing of Juju to a one-year deal. The contract reportedly for just $8 million. Juju Smith-Schuster gets a one-year, $8 million deal. That's it. Now, I know that there were multiple reports that Juju had competitive and or even better offers from the Baltimore Ravens, Kansas City Chiefs, Philadelphia Eagles. Maybe all that's true. Uh, maybe that stuff was just planted by Camp Juju for Juju to save face. But whatever the case may be, you, you, you cannot frame this in any way other than Juju got humbled. 
like our pal, the Iron Sheik likes to say, make him humble, Sheiky baby. Make him humble. Yes, thank you, Sheiky baby. Make him humble. Juju got humbled in NFL free agency. And look, I like Juju. There's a lot to like about Juju. He's young, going into just his age 25 season. He was very good over his first two seasons, 2017 and 2018. He's displayed a nose for the end zone, 26 touchdown receptions over his four seasons. He's one of the better blocking receivers in the NFL. He's been pretty durable, but Juju is a guy whose numbers have plummeted over the last few years without Antonio Brown as the Steelers' number one receiver. Juju can rub some people the wrong way. You know, I think it's interesting that we never heard Juju connected with the Washington football team. That doesn't mean for sure that Washington had no interest in Juju, but I did kind of wonder if Ron Rivera looked at Juju as a guy who could fit the culture. Because, you know, Juju, remember, he had like that TikTok dance thing where he danced on the Buffalo Bills logo in midfield before that Steelers loss uh, at the Bills on Sunday Night Football back in December. The whole Juju dancing on teams logos became kind of a thing. I mean, I, I don't normally think that stuff really matters that much. But, you know, Juju is very into social media. He can come off as more of a me guy than a team guy. You know, I, 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 I'm not like one of these people that's like, oh, he's on uh, Twitter all the time, so he must be a bad person. Like, no, I don't really think it works that way. But I think that it's not unreasonable to wonder if Ron looked at Juju and said, yeah, I don't know that this guy perfectly fits the culture that I'm trying to establish here. But Juju's good. Like, there's a lot to like about Juju, and yet he gets humbled, Shiki. Make him humble. Yes, thank you, Shiki. Uh, gets humbled, Juju does, to the tune of a one-year $8 million deal. But the biggest item over the weekend in terms of NFL free agency and the receiver market, and especially things relevant to our Washington football team, was the Kenny Galladay deal. Finally, Kenny Galladay, widely perceived as the number one free agent receiver on the market, came off the market. It took a while, no doubt. I mean, this is a guy who in years past probably would have been gobbled up in free agency on Monday, no later than Tuesday. Instead, he lingered on the market until Saturday. That said a lot about this collapsing receiver market. But Kenny Galladay did get paid. You know, this is not a juju scenario with Galladay. Galladay did get paid. He goes to the New York Giants. He gets a reported four-year, $72 million deal with a max value of $76 million and with $40 million guaranteed. And if you're like me and you view everything in the NFL through the prism of being a Washington football team fan, it was impossible not to compare the Galladay deal with the Giants with the Curtis Samuel deal with Washington. And I don't know about you, but I look at that Galladay deal, four years, $72 million, $40 million in guaranteed money. And I feel even better about what my team did at receiver in terms of the big fish that was reeled in in this free agency period. Washington gave Curtis Samuel a three-year, $34.5 million deal. Giants, again, to Galladay, four years, $72 million. You do the uh, AAV math on those contracts, right? The average annual value. Galladay is going to be getting paid $18 million per year by the Giants. Samuel is being paid $11.5 million per year by Washington. Would you rather have Galladay at $18 million per year or Samuel at $11.5 million per year? They are different players. They are different receivers, okay? But just looking at each guy, his body of work, where he's at in his career, 
Would you rather have Galladay at $18 million per year or Samuel at $11.5 million per year? My answer is simple. My answer is without hesitation. Curtis Samuel, please and thank you. You start with age. Galladay is going into his age 28 season. Samuel's going into his age 25 season. So right off the bat, Curtis Samuel is three years younger than Kenny Galladay. It's not that Kenny Galladay's ancient. I mean, you know, he's in his late 20s. Like, that's not uh, rendering him, like, completely useless moving forward. But Curtis Samuel is in that golden age of your mid-20s where you still got years to go in your athletic prime. So you understand this about sports and what we now know about what truly is an athlete's prime. A lot of us grew up thinking, all right, an athlete's prime is like, you know, 28 to 32, somewhere in there. No, 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 no. There's been a lot of research done on this. Athletes' primes, athletically speaking, you're talking like 25 to 27, somewhere in there. This has been looked at in baseball. This has been looked at in basketball. And when it comes to football, I mean, it does vary position by position. Like, obviously, a quarterback can be excellent deep into his 30s. But by and large, like when you're talking skill positions, uh, you're talking like mid to late 20s. Like that's the prime. And then after that, guys' production tends to tail off. Guys tend to start getting hurt. The bodies start to break down. Kenny Galladay going into his age 28 season. Curtis Samuel going into just his age 25 season. That is a beautiful thing from a Washington football team standpoint. There's a lot to like about Galladay. There's no doubt about that. He's a true deep threat, you know, a true outside receiver, a true X receiver. Uh, over his first four seasons, Galladay has averaged 16.8 yards per catch, including 18.3, and was, was a monster 2019 season for Kenny Galladay. Uh, and that monster 2019 for Galladay came despite Matthew Stafford playing just eight games due to a back injury. So Galladay put up big numbers in 2019, despite for eight games having as his quarterback either Jeff Driscoll or David Blau of the Detroit Lions, okay? So it wasn't just a bunch of Stafford throws from which Kenny Galladay benefited in recent years. The likes of Jeff Driscoll and David Blau uh, had to be throwing passes to Galladay, and Galladay still produced. He had back-to-back 1,000-yard receiving seasons in 2018 and 2019. He is a master of the contested catch. You know, Kenny Galladay, in a lot of ways, is what Josh Doxson was supposed to be. Galladay is a big receiver, listed by the Lions as being 6'4", 214 pounds. He's got great go-up-and-get-it skills. Like I said, a lot to like about Kenny Galladay. But... But Kenny Galladay in 2020 played in just five games. He missed the Lions' first two games of the season due to a hamstring injury, then missed the Lions' final nine games of the season due to a hip flexor strain. Now you tell me, hamstring, hip flexor, don't those injuries kind of matter? You're a receiver, right? Your legs matter. Your leaping ability matters, especially for a guy like Galladay. Again, big 50-50 catch guy. Is that not kind of a red flag? You know, is that not sounding at least a a few alarm bells in your mind? Now, does that mean that Kenny Galladay is going to be an injury-ravaged mess moving forward? No. But here you are now, okay, going into his age 28 season, missed 11 games in 2020 with two injuries having to do with the lower bodies, you know, a, a portion of the body that matters quite a bit if you're a receiver. And just look at it this way. Kenny Galladay now at $18 million per year is in the top 10 of all receivers in terms of average annual value, AAV. Like, you can like Kenny Galladay a lot, but is he worthy of being in that territory? Like, his AAV is comparable to that of Michael Thomas, who's at 19.25. Like, I mean, Galladay's good, like I said, but is he Michael Thomas good? 
You know, Tyreek Hill is making $18 million per year. Again, Galladay's good. Is he Tyreek Hill good? Like, would you put him on the same level as Tyreek Hill? Like, that's big money that the Giants now are paying Kenny Galladay. And I know, cap is going to go up. I say it all the time. Today's overpay is tomorrow's bargain. If you believe in Kenny Galladay, if you think he's going to be a stud producer, you know, especially for the Giants and you're trying to bring along a young quarterback in Daniel Jones, if you feel like Galladay is going to be a part of this emergence of Daniel Jones, then go ahead and pay him that. But that's a lot of money. Like, he's got to do a lot to justify that. That, that, that's, that's not, you know, pennies on the dollar here. Kenny Galladay now is top 10 in the NFL among receivers in AAV. Curtis Samuel, on the other hand, at $11.5 million per year, is not even in the top 20. You know, so much of free agency, it's not just about who do you get and like, is the guy good? It's who do you get and at what price? Like, that's the conversation. It's, it's not just looking at each player and saying, okay, is this guy better than that guy? It's, is this buy better than that buy? And to me, Samuel at $11.5 million per year, a better buy than Galladay at $18 million per year. We've talked about Samuel, right? The guy is super fast, 4-3-140 at the 2017 scouting combine, right? We talked about Deshaun Jackson earlier on the podcast. Deshaun, uber fast, lightning quick. You know, Jackpot Jackson, he ran a 4-3-540 at his combine in 2008. Curtis Samuel was faster, a 4-3-140 in 2017. Curtis Samuel, unlike Galladay, is coming off a very productive 2020 season. Uh, now, it is the only true big season that Samuel has had so far. That's true. But again, Samuel is younger. You're sort of buying for what he's going to do for you, as opposed to doing the thing that way too often happens in free agency, and that is paying for what the guy has done, right? What you always want to do is pay for what the guy's going to do, not what the guy has done. Now, like I said, Samuel and Galladay, they're two different receivers. Samuel is a smaller receiver. He was listed by the Carolina Panthers as being 5'11", buck 95. Samuel does not really profile as a true outside receiver, a true X the way Galladay does, right? Samuel going to be probably more utilized as a slot receiver, but Samuel also can be utilized in other ways too. He offers a position flex, i.e. the ability to carry the football that Galladay just does not. So this will be an interesting compare and contrast, right? Galladay with the Giants, Samuel with the Washington football team, two significant free agent signings in the 2021 offseason at the receiver position. Which guy ends up providing the better deal? Which guy ends up living up to his contract more, perhaps even exceeding his contract? I know this. It's hard to ever exceed making $18 million per year. It's possible, but it's not probable. Like best case scenario realistically is that you live up to $18 million per year. Curtis Samuel has the potential to blow out of the water him making $11.5 million per year. And that's why I like that contract so much. Now, you know, there's another deal you can throw into the mix here, right? And that would be something like the Corey Davis contract with the New York Jets. Uh, The Jets were aggressive in going after Corey Davis and got him and uh, signed him to a three-year $37.5 million deal 27 million dollars guaranteed right those are the details of the Corey Davis contract per report now I've heard from some of you saying oh why don't we get Corey Davis or Corey Davis at 12.5 million dollars per year is better than Samuel at 11.5 million dollars per year and we'll see on something like that but I said this about Corey Davis and I mean this I would be reluctant on Corey Davis Corey Davis was a bust as a number five overall pick by the Tennessee Titans in that 2017 draft. All right, the Titans didn't even pick up the fifth-year option 
and Corey Davis's rookie contract. I mean, think about that. And I know Davis had a good 2020, but that was the first good year he had had over his first four seasons. Like, is this truly now who Corey Davis is, what he did in 2020? Or was that just kind of a, a good performance in a contract season, but you're never going to see anything close to that again from Corey Davis. I mean, remember, he was part of a very good Tennessee Titans operation, very good offense with the Georgetown prep product, Arthur Smith, as the offensive coordinator, right, son of the Washington football team minority owner, Fred Smith. But, you know, Ryan Tannehill, reborn with the Titans at quarterback, Derrick Henry, bruising physical running back, Jonu Smith, right, at tight end, just got paid, of course, by the New England Patriots. Like, there was a lot kind of going in Corey Davis's favor in 2020. He did have a good year. I'm not trying to say that he didn't, but, you know, you talk about, like, certainty. You want to push tens of millions of dollars across the table to someone who you feel like is going to deliver. And maybe Davis does with the Jets, but I do have questions about that. What happened with him over his first three years to where the Titans, a good organization, decided to not even pick up the fifth-year option in his contract? So Curtis Samuel, he spoke for the first time uh, publicly as a Washington football team player. Uh, This happened on Friday, an introductory Zoom press conference. One of the things we know about Curtis Samuel is that he offers this position flex. Curtis Samuel, over his four years with the Panthers, had 72 carries for 478 yards and five touchdowns. He averaged 6.64 yards per carry. He is a receiver, but he also can do a lot of damage as a ball carrier. Curtis Samuel, in fact, was a running back at Ohio State. Here was Samuel on Friday on his versatility. Oh, I feel like that's great. You know, I... I feel like that's good for offense coordinator, you know, just to be able to scheme up defenses, do different things, put defenses in positions, you know, that, that they don't want to be in, show them different looks, you know, being able to go on the backfield, go outside wide, go on the slot. You know, I feel like that adds a lot of versatility to the offense, you know, and just make things harder on the defense. It is to me one of the really cool things about the modern NFL, the melting away of position labels and how you have now on offense just weapons, you know, tight ends who line up at receiver, running backs who line up at receiver, receivers who carry the football, like all kinds of different ways that people are deployed. And Washington rather quickly, right, has boosted its inventory of people like this. Antonio Gibson is a running back who also was a receiver in college. J.D. McKissick is a running back who also was a receiver in college. Curtis Samuel is a receiver who also was a running back in college. You have someone like Logan Thomas, your tight end, who played quarterback in college and can line up at that spot and can be used, say, in short yardage situations. You know, all kinds of different ways you can make usage of your quote-unquote pass catchers. And I think that's a beautiful thing. I think it's what Ron Rivera and Scott Turner very much want. I think it's very much the direction that the NFL is going in. This is a modern, progressive way of trying to advance the football. You know, Curtis Samuel is a weapon to be deployed in a variety of ways. And especially when you look at Scott Turner and one of the things he really likes to do, and this goes back to his time with the Carolina Panthers, but that is usually a whole lot of motion. You think about Curtis Samuel from that standpoint, put him in motion. He's, he's going to be all over the place this upcoming season. Those week-by-week breakdowns of where he lined up are going to be so much fun to follow. You can put him in the slot. You can put him in the outside. You can put him in the backfield. You can put him in motion. You can throw him the football. You can hand him off the football. You can use him on a jet sweep. Like all kinds of ways that Curtis Samuel can inflict pain on opposing defenses. So more from Samuel on Friday. Where is he most comfortable on the field? Um, Anything. If anything, uh, I mean, I work mostly on, you know, just becoming a better receiver. You know, 
I didn't spend too much of my life playing receiver. You know, running back is pretty much natural to me. Played that my whole life. So, you know, if you put me in the backfield, you don't even have to tell me the reads or anything. You know, just tell me which way I'm going. And, you know, my talents and, you know, just my history of playing running back just kind of takes over. Um, you know, I just want to go forward and just become a better receiver, you know, working each and every day on things I'm not great at, you know, and trying to become great at that. You know, I've had a saying I've used for years, what would Belichick do? I always try to look at things in the NFL through that prism. Like, when in doubt of what your team should do, just ask yourself that question, what would Belichick do? Well, I tell you what, when it comes to offense, I think you can also ask the question, what would Andy Reid do? Okay, or is this a guy or is this something that Andy Reid would be on board with? I don't know about you, but I look at Curtis Samuel and he to me reeks of an Andy Reid type guy. You know, can you not see someone like a Curtis Samuel on the Kansas City Chiefs? He comes from that vein of Tyreek Hill of, yeah, he's a smaller receiver, but he's someone who's so much more than just a receiver. And he can scorch you with his speed. He can scorch you with his ability to make the big play. And Curtis Samuel, to me, is going to be someone who's going to really help Washington in that regard. You can use him in a variety of ways. He brings to the table game-breaking speed, and he's going to offer Washington an opportunity to get back to doing something that it hasn't done with really any kind of frequency since Deshaun Jackson was with the team uh, for his last season there, 2016, and that is authored the explosive play. Passing plays of 20 or more yards. Washington has been so lacking in that department over these last four seasons. It's time for that to change. I think Curtis Samuel very much can be a part of changing that. So it wasn't just Curtis Samuel who had his introductory Zoom press conference for the Washington football team on Friday. William Jackson III had his introductory Zoom presser on Friday as well. The free agent corner, three-year, $40.5 million contract per report, $26 million in guaranteed money, $16 million fully guaranteed at signing. A few things of note from the William Jackson, the third presser. So, of course, there's been a decent amount made of Jackson being a very good man corner, but that perhaps not messing well with Washington's defense, which played a lot of zone coverage in 2020. Zone coverage is something Ron Rivera's Carolina Panthers defenses were known for. And I pushed back on all this big time on the podcast on Friday, basically saying, look, Jackson, yes, he's been very good in man coverage, but he's also been very good in zone coverage. It's not like he's, you know, completely inept when it comes to playing zone coverage. If you go by pro football focuses grades, Jackson over his four seasons of playing 2017 through 2020, a man coverage grade of 78.8, a zone coverage grade of 74.1. I mean, it's not that much of a difference. Also, this thing of, well, Washington is a zone defense team, and that's just the way that it is. Not necessarily. That's the way that it was last season. But Jack Del Rio, it's not like he's never used man coverage. In fact, Jack Del Rio used quite a bit of man coverage during his time as Denver Broncos defensive coordinator from 2012 through 2014. And there were some really good Broncos defenses during that span. So I tend to think the heavy usage of zone coverage in 2020 by Washington was as much about adapting to the talent on Washington's defense as it was about this, you know, oh, we have to play zone. Like, yes, it's true. Ron's Carolina defenses were known for mostly playing zone, uh, no doubt. But I think any good coaching staff adapts to its talent. And you don't just have your system and you say, okay, everyone must fit our system. It's you have your system you maybe have some like guiding principles, but you are flexible and you are willing to adjust to the talent 
on your team. And so if William Jackson III is very good at man coverage and you feel like others in your secondary can excel in man coverage as well, then I think you'll see more man coverage in 2021. Anyway, to all of that, Jackson on Friday got asked a good amount about fitting into Washington's defensive scheme. And he said all the right things about just wanting to make the defense better. Also said that he had been told that the coaching staff was still putting together the playbook for the 2021 season, i.e. it had not yet been decided uh, what kind of a defensive approach the team will be taking. And let's be honest too, your defense is going to alter week to week depending on the matchup, right? So maybe one week you go heavy zone, maybe another week you go heavy man. But here was Jackson on Friday on adjusting to playing more zone defense if necessary. I'm just here to play whatever they want me to play. Um, it's, it's not a big deal. I can play zone or man. It's, it's no big deal. I'm just, my strengths are just locking dudes up, but I could play man to zone. It wouldn't be a problem. I played that in Cincinnati. We we rarely played man in Cincinnati. You don't want to ever do the thing of signing someone who was very good playing one way and then insisting on that guy playing another way. That's actually part of what got Washington in trouble in the Albert Hainsworth debacle, although clearly Albert played a sizable role in his signing with Washington, proving to be a flop. It's also something that played a role in the Josh Norman signing not working out as time went on. Josh Norman played a lot of zone, excelled in zone with the Panthers for years, gets brought here to Washington, gets asked to play more man, and it doesn't go very well. If Ron Rivera and Jack Del Rio are who we think they are, and certainly who they came across as in 2020, they're not doing that here with William Jackson III. They're not signing the guy off him having excelled one way and then now insisting on him playing another way. And it was interesting there when Jackson said, we rarely played man in Cincinnati, you know, that I actually played a lot of zone with the Bengals, a lot more zone than uh, you guys seem to think, you know, is, is seemingly what Jackson was trying to say there uh, in that cut. Now, there was another interesting reveal from William Jackson III in this intro Zoom presser on Friday. So I've talked about with William Jackson how essentially, you know, four seasons as a player for the Bengals, he missed all of his rookie year 2016 due to a torn pack. So you look at the four seasons in which he's played 2017 through 2020, kind of an oversimplification of things would be he was good in three of the four years, 2017, 2018, and 2020. He did not have a very good 2019 during which he battled a shoulder injury that cost him two games. Jackson on Friday did say that he played the entire 2019 season with a torn labrum. So if that's true, then that would certainly help to explain why the guy's 2019 season wasn't his best. And it also highlights, right, the guy's toughness, that he has a torn labrum, he's just a few years away from free agency, and yet he still ends up playing in 14 games in that 2019 season. So that speaks to his toughness, his commitment to his team. You know, it's worth noting, right, not just that he plays through a torn labrum in 19 a year away from free agency, but he plays through a torn labrum in 19 for a Bengals team that was not good, right? 2019, Cincinnati ended up being bad enough to where the Bengals got the number one overall pick in that 2020 draft, in which, of course, Cincinnati took Joe Burrow. So I think that says a lot about William Jackson the third, the guy, and his commitment to team and his toughness and his willingness to play through pain. And that's clearly something that you want. Now, William Jackson only has three interceptions over his four NFL seasons of playing. I never get caught up in interceptions by corners. I think most of you understand that, right? Like you don't judge a corner purely or even mostly uh, on his interceptions. You know, there are plenty of good corners who don't get a lot of interceptions. I mean, you do like for your corners to get picks if they, if those corners can, 
But just because you don't have a lot of picks doesn't mean that you're not doing a very good job. Here was Jackson on Friday on what he would say to someone who focuses on him only having three interceptions in four seasons. I just tell him to watch the tape. Uh, I wasn't getting thrown there the whole lot. You know, I wasn't the guy that got picked on. So I'm assuming that's a good thing I only got three because I wasn't the guy that got picked on. Uh, I was the guy to, to go get the job done. And when you covering guys up, I don't think you can get many picks. And he's, of course, right about that. When you're covering guys up, you don't get many picks because they're not throwing the ball your way. And if you can do that, if you can cut the field in half, if you can create a William Jackson the third Island, the way we had Revis Island years ago for Darrell Revis, then you're obviously doing a great job. One more for you from William Jackson. Here he was on Ryan Fitzpatrick. William Jackson has faced Ryan Fitzpatrick in the past. Of course, like basically everyone in the NFL has faced Ryan Fitzpatrick in the past. He's been in the NFL since 2005, but it was in 2019 that the Bengals and the Dolphins squared off in a battle of suck, okay? But this actually ended up being a really good game. It was an overtime victory for the Dolphins, 38-35 at home over the Bengals, week 16 of the 2019 season. Fitzpatrick in that game for Miami, 31 of 52, for 419 yards, four touchdowns, and an interception. That's the kind of dynamic playmaking that Fitzpatrick can author. And I know, you could say the Bengals stunk in 2019, Goldie. That's true, but so did the Dolphins. And yet still, Fitzmagic, 31 of 52, for 419, four touchdowns, and a pick. Jackson on Friday on Fitzpatrick. Actually, man, he's a, a great quarterback. He's he's one of the guys that have no fear. Like he had no fear. He challenged me. He challenged everybody. He a guy that brings swagger to the team. He's just a fun guy to be around, man. I'm excited to work with him. Excited for him to be one of the quarterbacks because he he's a guy that know how to win. He wouldn't be scared to throw his nose in there too and get that first down. Yeah, and you heard Jackson there reference Ryan Fitzpatrick's willingness to scramble, willingness to run for a first down. Understand this about Ryan Fitzpatrick. No, he's not Lamar Jackson or Deshaun Watson in terms of mobility, but Ryan Fitzpatrick can still motor. And Fitzpatrick over his last two seasons, right, his two years with the Miami Dolphins, his age 37 and age 38 seasons, a combined 84 carries for 394 yards and six touchdowns, 4.7 yards per carry. He is a factor as a ball carrier. Like, no, he's not super dynamic. And no, he's not going to make anyone forget RG3 in 2012. But he can threaten you with his legs. He can be a factor with his legs. You've heard me say this about Alex Smith, the extent to which he was not a factor with his legs in the 2020 regular season. Alex over eight games, 10 carries, three yards. That's it. Very hard to do quarterback that way in today's NFL. Not impossible, right? I mean, nothing matters more than what you do as a passer, as a thrower of the football, how quickly you process opposing defenses. Do you make the right decisions? Do you make accurate throws? But you'd like it so that your quarterback, if a pocket collapses, isn't dead. Okay, you'd like it so that your quarterback, if the pocket collapses, can extend the play and can maybe even turn a negative play into a positive play or can be a factor to run the ball in the red zone where defenses get bunched in tight. Fitzpatrick does that and don't lose sight of that in terms of what he's bringing to the table for the Washington football team.
We get back now to the NCAA tournament, and like I said earlier, very good weekend for Maryland, but overall, a brutal weekend for our area teams in the NCAA tournament. Georgetown, Virginia, Virginia Tech all losing, VCU not even playing. Let us begin, though, with the Hoyas, the 12-seeded Hoyas losing to 5-seeded Colorado, 96-73 at Butler Single Fieldhouse in the first round of the tournament on Saturday afternoon, and there really isn't much to say about this game. It was a debacle for the Hoyas. You know, this was a blowout. This was a pasting. This was a polaxing. This was a no-doubt route of a loss for Georgetown. The Hoyas led it 2-0 and 3-2, and then never led again. Trailed at the half 47-23. The Hoyas in the second half never got closer than 18 points. I mean, it was like the game started and then Colorado went on a run and that was it. I mean, the game was over. The Hoyas allowed Colorado to shoot 60.7% from the field, including 16 to 25 on threes. So much for that improved Georgetown defense that was on display in the Big East tournament. The Hoyas allowed Colorado's senior point guard, McKinley Wright the fourth. We talked about him on Friday's podcast to finish with 13 assists versus no turnovers. 13 assists versus no turnovers uh, to go with 12 points and five rebounds. The Hoyas allowed this Colorado freshman, Jabari Walker, to go five of five on threes and finish with 24 points in 20 minutes off the bench. Understand this, Jabari Walker entered the game averaging 7.3 points per game, entered the game having totaled 21 points, over his previous five games, and yet he, in just this game, scored 24 points, and in just 20 minutes off the bench, uh, Hoyas scored just 23 points in the first half, during which Georgetown went 1-9 on threes, just 6-13 on free throws. Like I said, I mean, the game was a mess from a Hoyas perspective. Now, as bad as the loss was, and it was bad, okay, uh, it doesn't take away from what Georgetown did in the Big East tournament, okay? That remains an epic all-time run authored by the Hoyas. You know, back against the wall, really no realistic shot at making the NCAA tournament other than winning the Big East tournament, and yet the Hoyas did it. They pulled it off. They won the four games in four days to clinch the program's first NCAA tournament berth since 2015. Georgetown entered that Big East tournament with 60-1 to odds to win it per Caesars William Hill and yet ended up winning it. I mean, one of the true big upsets in terms of a Cinderella winning certainly a Power 5 conference tournament in years, what Georgetown did in winning that Big East tournament. And the Hoyas needed this, needed that desperately. Like I said, Georgetown had not made the NCAA tournament since 2015. You were staring dead on at missing the NCAA tournament for a sixth consecutive season until you pulled that off. So that epic run to win the Big East tournament, that is not diminished by the fact that Georgetown got smashed by Colorado in the first round of the NCAA tournament. Nor does that loss to Colorado change the fact that Georgetown has an excellent recruiting class on the way. Know this, the Hoyas have the number nine recruiting class in the country for next season for 24-7 sports. The class boasts this five-star recruit in Aminu Muhammad. The class also boosts a big man named Ryan Matumbo, who, yes, is the son of Dikembe Mutombo. But this guy, Aminu Muhammad, this is really exciting that Georgetown got him. He announced his commitment to the Hoyas back on December 21st. 
Muhammad is the Hoyas first five-star recruit since Isaac Copeland in 2014. Now, I know these five-star ratings, sometimes they end up meaning nothing and you end up laughing at who actually was rated as a five-star guy. But Muhammad, at least as far as we know, can play. I mean, he chose Georgetown over Indiana, over Georgia, over Texas, over Kansas State, over DePaul. This is a guy with ties to the D.C. area, came to the U.S. from Nigeria, first lived in the U.S. in Washington, D.C. He became the third highest ranked prospect to commit to Georgetown since ESPN began its recruiting database in 2007. Like the Hoyas just have not had many big time recruits over the last decade and a half. Aminu Muhammad is one of them. So it's very exciting to think about what he could mean to the program, what Ryan Matumbo could mean to the program. You know, you are bringing some key guys from this Georgetown team back. You know, I think about somebody like a Dante Harris, the freshman point guard who earned the Dave Gavitt Trophy as the most outstanding player of the Big East tournament. I think about somebody like Kudis Wahab, the big man who was basically the only Hoya who had a good game on Saturday. Kudis Wahab in that loss to Colorado, 20 points on 7-12 shooting. 12 rebounds in just 24 minutes as a starter. You are losing Javon Blair and Jamarco Pickett, at least in theory. Each guy is a senior. Although remember, as a senior, you do have the option to come back and play again next season because of the COVID-19 pandemic. So we'll see on something like that. But there is reason for optimism for Georgetown for the first time in a long time. You know, it's been a rough go of it for the Hoyas here in recent years. You actually have some concrete things to sink your teeth into in terms of having reasonably high expectations for the Hoyas next season. We have not been able to say that in a very long time. The epic run to win the Big East tournament, this very good recruiting class for next season, changes that. And so don't lose sight of that. Like, yes, Saturday was ugly. There's no question about that. But brighter days may well be ahead for the Hoyas. Now to Virginia. Does any team in college basketball have a weirder recent NCAA tournament resume than Virginia? Another early tournament exit for Wahoo. Saturday night, the four-seeded Cavaliers losing to 13-seeded Ohio, 62-58 at Indiana University's Assembly Hall in the first round. Now, we all know how this NCAA tournament has gone. Ohio, one of four teams seated at number 13 or higher to advance to the second round in this NCAA tournament. That's the most such seeds to advance to a round of 32 in NCAA tournament history. So in an NCAA tournament in which you have had 15 seated Oral Roberts, 14 seated Abilene Christian, and 13 seated North Texas advance to the second round, the fact that 13 seated Ohio did so as well doesn't exactly floor you. And so you could sort of frame it as, yeah, Virginia lost, but this is a wacky tournament in a wacky year. These wacky things happen. Yes, true that. But this really has become a thing with Virginia. And it's so odd, right? Because also a thing with Virginia was winning the 2019 national championship. You know, Virginia on the one hand, right, became the first one seed in NCAA tournament history to lose to a 16 seed with that blowout loss to 16 seeded UMBC in 2018. But Virginia the next year won the whole darn thing, won the national championship. So it's like, you wouldn't trade that. You know, so many programs across the country would kill for Virginia's recent NCAA tournament resume. But it's just been an odd run here. Like you had the loss to UMBC, one losing to a 16 in 2018. I brought this up the other day on the podcast. Remember in 2019, yes, Virginia won that NCAA tournament, 
but Virginia was down big in its first round game against a 16 seed in that tournament. What was a win, what ended up being a 71-56 victory over 16-seeded Gardner-Webb. Uh, Virginia, in that first-round game in 2019, trailed at the half 30-16. So, like, that was weird with Virginia in 2019. You had what happened with the Cavaliers in the 2017 NCAA tournament. Virginia, as a five-seed, losing to four-seeded Florida 65-39 in the second round. The Cavs, in that game, shot just 29.6% from the field including one of 15 on threes. You had what happened in the 2015 NCAA tournament. Virginia as a two-seed, losing to seven-seeded Michigan State, 60-54 in the second round. The Cavs in that game shooting at 29.8% from the field, including two of 17 on threes. So you see a theme there, right? Virginia losing in the second round of an NCAA tournament, thanks in no small part to the offense just going completely limp. Well, that's what happened to Virginia on Saturday night against Ohio. The Cavs were terrible offensively. They shot just 35% from the field, including 8 of 31 on threes. Trey Murphy the third went 4 of 8 on threes. The rest of the Wahoos went 4 of 23 on threes. The Who's four other starters beyond Murphy. So we're talking about Sam Hauser, Jay Huff, Kihei Clark, and Reese Beekman. A combined 3 for 20 on threes. Just brutal. Uh, the Cavs held Ohio to 42% shooting, including 7 to 23 on three. So the defense wasn't really the thing for the Virginia Cavaliers, but the offense clearly was. And like I just outlined, we've seen that before with these early round NCAA tournament exits for Virginia. Now, I know there's a thing that people will say of, well, this is how it is with Tony Bennett. You know, he's a great defensive coach, but his offense is very flawed and Virginia plays too slow and they're just not very good offensively. It's not true. That, 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 that is a, uh, that's a narrative that isn't fair to Tony Bennett and Virginia. Virginia has been one of the more efficient offensive teams in the country multiple times in recent seasons. Even as we speak on this Monday morning, Virginia, in terms of adjusted offensive efficiency for Kempom.com, so that's points for 100 possessions adjusted for opponent. Virginia, even with that loss to Ohio on Saturday night, 16th in the country in adjusted offensive efficiency. Virginia's really not a bad offensive team. And if the offense is so fundamentally flawed, how is it that Virginia won the 2019 National Championship? So I don't buy this thing that like Virginia offensively just doesn't have an offense that's suited to winning in the NCAA tournament. But it is true that a number of these early round exits for the Cavaliers in recent years have come with the offense going dry and, and the shooting just being brutal. And that certainly was the case on Saturday night. Now, if you're a Virginia fan, you can say, well, I'm glad my team ended up just even playing. Because remember, there was uh, doubt about whether the Cavaliers would be even able to play this game due to the COVID-19 protocols. Virginia Wright had its game against Georgia Tech in the ACC tournament semis canceled due to a positive COVID-19 test within the Virginia program. Virginia ended up passing its tests, you know, making it through the protocols and playing this game. So that was good news. That was, however, not the case for another team in the Commonwealth, VCU. 10-seeded VCU ended up being forced to forfeit its game against 7-seeded Oregon on Saturday night due to multiple positive tests for the VCU program within the previous 48 hours. Just terrible news. I mean, I really felt awful for VCU. VCU had a very good season. VCU, one of the best defensive teams in the country as we speak on this Monday morning. VCU is 13th in the nation in adjusted defensive efficiency, 
for Kempom.com. And we'll never know what might have happened for VCU in this tournament. Again, being forced to forfeit its first round game against Oregon due to multiple positive COVID-19 tests. You know, we dealt with this when this went down with Virginia in the ACC tournament. There really hasn't been any evidence of on-court spread or uh, on-field spread or in-game spread of COVID-19 so far, thank God. So, you know, there is an argument to be made of, you know, you maybe could have tried to make this game happen for VCU Oregon, but I get why the NCAA plays this conservatively, right? These are, in theory, student-athletes. You know, you are, as the NCAA, a massive business. You know, optics matter. You don't want the optics of, yeah, they had a bunch of positive tests, but we're still going to let them play anyway. Like, you know, even though the science may say, yeah, you know, it's maybe not the end of the world if you do it. You do want to err on the side of caution. Like, I get where the NCAA is coming from, from that perspective. And of course, there still is a thing with COVID-19, even though like so many of these athletes who get it end up being totally fine. There still is a thing we don't know of years down the line if you had COVID-19, if you end up with some health problem, you know, 5, 10, 15 years from now. Like, hopefully that's not the case. Uh, there's no like evidence that that will be the case, but I know that is something that's come up. So you do have to play it as, all right, we can't let you play if you've had a bunch of positive tests. I get where the NCAA is coming from, from that standpoint, but it stinks. I mean, it stinks that VCU's season ends like that. Well, you got to forfeit a game to Oregon to say nothing, of course, of the competitive advantage, at least in theory it is, when you don't have to even play a first round game. And you can just, you know, hop and skip into the second round with uh, no damage, no fatigue, no nothing. You know, it's like, all right, we get a bye into the second round. Let's see what happens. You know, it's going to be interesting with Oregon. Seven-seeded Oregon faces two-seeded Iowa in the second round Monday afternoon at 12-10. That's the first game of day two of the second round. Does Oregon greatly benefit from not having played in the first round? Or does it end up not mattering? I mean, if you're Iowa, it really shouldn't matter. But we'll see. We'll see. That's going to be an interesting thing to track. So feel bad for VCU. Rough ending to the season for Virginia. I mean, Tony Bennett still has the Virginia program in an excellent spot. Every year, Virginia is in the NCAA tournament. Virginia just won the ACC regular season title for a fifth time in eight seasons. I mean, like the bigger picture with the Cavaliers is sparkling. But another early round exit for the Cavaliers in an NCAA tournament. Continuing this trend of a lot of ugliness in NCAA tournament games for Virginia, a lot of early round exits, but of course, also a part of that mix, the glorious 2019 National Championship. We arrive now at Virginia Tech. The 10-seeded Hokies losing to 7-seeded Florida 75-70 in overtime at Butler's Hinkle Fieldhouse in the first round of the NCAA tournament on Friday afternoon. What was the first game of the first round of this NCAA tournament ended up being one of the best games of the first round in this NCAA tournament, but it was a Hokies loss in what was just the Hokies' fourth game since February 6th due to COVID-19. Tech, in its regular season, had seven cancellations slash postponements due to COVID-19 protocols, and you never really felt with certainty what the Hokies were as the season progressed because Tech just played so infrequently. Again, just four games since February 6th. This was, though, a killer of a loss for Tech given what Tech did to force the overtime. So the Hokies overcame a five-point deficit with less than a minute left in regulation and got an epic shot, a game-tying pull-up contested right-wing three from Naheem Aleen with 1.4 seconds left in the second half. Trey Mann of Florida had his left hand right in Aline's face, and yet Aline still buried the shot. Such a great moment 
for Tech basketball. Aline coming through with that game tying three. But the Hokies saw two key guys foul out in overtime. Keve Aluma fouled out of the game in the first minute of overtime. Justin Mutz fouled out in the second minute of overtime. And the Hokies ended up losing the overtime 11-6. Tech did not shoot the ball particularly well, 42.1% from the field, including just two of 11 on threes after halftime. The Hokies allowed the Gators to shoot 56.5% from the field, including five of 13 on threes. And the Hokies got beat up on the boards, out-rebounded 36-22. Tech allowed the 6-11 Michigan transfer, Colin Castleton, to finish with 14 rebounds to go with 19 points on six of eight shooting and three blocks. But this was a winnable game, right? Obviously, I mean, it went to overtime. Hokies had just 11 turnovers to the Gators, 18. Florida was a mess at the free throw line, just 18 of 27 on free throws. Uh, Aline and Tyrese Radford combined for 46 of the Hokies, 70 points. Just five Tech players scored the entire game. And Aline was so clutch. I mean, obviously that three to tie the game to force the OT, he finished 4 of 10 on threes and with 28 points. Radford, 18 points, 7 of 15 shooting and four rebounds. Played for all 45 minutes. So bad ending to Tech season, although, you know, that was a great game, competitive game. And overall, State of the Hokies is strong. You know, Tech, as of the end of this season here, has made the NCAA tournament in each of the four previous seasons for which there has been an NCAA tournament. You know, Tech had made the NCAA tournament in three straight years, 2017 through 2019, for the first time in program history. This is not a rich basketball history that you have at Virginia Tech. Prior to the 2016-2017 season, the Hokies had made the NCAA tournament just once over the previous 20 years, just twice over the previous 30 years. You may remember when Seth Greenberg was Tech's head coach, like every year, Tech was a bubble team. Every year, Tech would not make the tournament. It would be a big talking point of why didn't Tech make the tournament? And Greenberg would be all over the place talking up Tech's case. You don't have that anymore. Tech routinely now makes the NCAA tournament. And the Hokies in that 2019 tournament, you may recall, advanced to the Sweet 16 and did so for the first time since the tournament expanded back in 1985. You lost Buzz Williams to Texas A&M after that 2018-2019 season. But Mike Young hired away from Wofford has done a good job, got Tech back to the NCAA tournament this season, won ACC Coach of the Year. Yeah, it's, it's difficult to me to be upset if you're a Hokies fan right now, big picturing it with where Tech basketball is at. It's a shame the Hokies did not win on Friday, but Tech basketball in a much different place, in a much better place now as compared to just a few years ago. We move now to the Capitals, who do not play again until Thursday night at 7 o'clock when the Caps host the New Jersey Devils. Caps then host the Devils again on Friday night at 7. Caps are tied with the New York Islanders for first in the East Division at 44 points. It was a mixed weekend for the Capitals, a 1-1-0 and weekend. Uh, the one win came on Friday night. Caps a 2-1 victory over the New York Rangers at Capital One Arena, what was a season-best seventh consecutive victory for the Caps, what was a win that sealed the Caps going 7-0-0 without Tom Wilson during a seven-game suspension. Isn't that something? Tom Wilson, a top-line player, right? There's a reason his nickname is Top-Line Tom, and yet you go 7-0-0 during his seven-game suspension. Just a tremendous job by the Caps to author that mark without Wilson. Caps won that game on Friday night despite having just 18 shots on goal to the Rangers, 33. The five-on-five shot attempts battle was about even, but the Caps, four minor penalties to the Rangers, too. Uh, Caps went two or three on the penalty kill 
in that game. Then, though, came the game on Saturday night, another game with the Rangers at Capital One Arena, and this was a loss, a 3-1 loss. So the seven-game winning streak over, and of course, comically, you go 7-0-0 without Wilson. Wilson comes back, his first game back, you lose for the first time in eight games. So such is life, I guess. Uh, the Caps go down. Wilson had the primary assist on the Caps' lone goal, but also a first-period slashing minor and just one hit, and all four of his shot attempts got blocked in that game. So kind of a mixed game one back for Tom Wilson on Saturday night. Caps do remain without Lars Eller. He now has missed each of the last four games due to a lower body injury that was suffered in that 5-4 win at the Philadelphia Flyers now two Saturday nights ago. And the Caps lost that game on Saturday night just by dominating the puck possession battle. Caps have won so often this season when losing the puck possession battle. Saturday night, the Caps win the puck possession battle, but lose the game. Uh, Caps for natural stat trick, 53 5-on-5 shot attempts to the Rangers 30, nine five-on-five high-danger shot attempts to the Rangers four. But the Rangers did a great job in that game of blocking shots. New York finished with 23 block shots in the game. So the Caps had a bunch of shot attempts, but a good number of them ended up being blocked. Caps go 0-4 on the power play. Now, from a goaltending standpoint, Ilya Samsonov was the man in net on Saturday night. He started for a sixth time in 11 games. So you now have what I I guess Peter Laviolette wanted all along and that is a pretty even split right now of the goaltending duties. I mean, eventually the Caps are going to settle on a true number one, but we've gone from Vitek Vanacek basically starting every game to now it's pretty much an even split between Samsonov and Vanacek. That's certainly what you had over the weekend. So Samsonov on Saturday night actually did a pretty good job. Stopped 22 or 24 shots on goal. Uh, per natural stat trick, went four or five on high danger shots on goal, seven of eight on medium danger shots on goal, and nine of nine on low danger shots on goal. What was a killer was what ended up being the game winning goal. So the game was tied at one deep into the third period when Mika Zabanajad stole the puck away from Caps defenseman Brendan Dillon in the Caps defensive zone, corralled the puck deep in the right circle, and then beat Samsonov for an even strength goal, 17-28 into the third period for a 2-1 Rangers lead. Just a tremendous job by Zabanajad, a bad job by Dylan, who, of course, is a part of the Caps' top defense pair with John Carlson. And Zabanajad doing the Caps dirty is nothing new. You may recall this, March 5th, 2020, a 6-5 overtime loss for the Caps at the Rangers. Zabanajad in that game, five goals. Yes, Zabanajad had a five-goal game against the Caps little more than a year ago, including the game-winning even-strength goal just 33 seconds into overtime. But also in that game, was a power play goal by Zabanajad 18-18 into the third period. What happened on that goal? Basically the same thing that happened on the Zabanajad goal this past Saturday night. Zabanajad got position on and beat none other than Brendan Dillon to a loose puck off the boards while skating through the right circle and then beat, yes, Ilya Samsonov. So it was deja vu all over again. Zabanajad dooming Dylan, dooming Samsonov in a Capitals loss to the Rangers. Uh, I mentioned Vanacek. So he was good in that 2-1 win over the Rangers on Friday night. Stopped 32 of the 33 shots on goal that he faced, including all 25 of the shots on goal that he faced over the final two periods. Vanacek for natural stat trick in that game. 5 of 5 on high danger shots on goal. 7 of 8 on medium danger shots on goal, and 16 of 16 on low danger shots on goal. So he wasn't necessarily tested a ton, but he did a good job uh, when he was tested. Good weekend for John Carlson. Uh, he had the Caps' lone goal 
on Saturday night. Game high 14 shot attempts. It finished number two on the Caps in best five on five shot attempt percentage for the game per natural stat trick. Carlson scoring an even strength goal 555 into the third period to tie the game at one as he from the slot backhanded the puck off it having just been blocked by defenseman Jacob Truba. Uh, Carlson, this is nifty. He backhanded the puck through Truba's legs off Truba's left skate and then passed the right pad of the Rangers goaltender, Keith Kincaid. And we had a milestone night for Carlson on Friday night. He had the primary assist on Alex Ovechkin's second, third period even strength goal to pass Mike Gartner for the fourth most regular season assists in Caps history. And yes, the great eight, Alex Ovechkin, he had himself another good weekend. Ovi in the loss on Saturday night, game high, six shots on goal, 10 shot attempts, finished fourth on the Caps and best five-on-five shot attempt percentage per natural stat trick. And Ovi on Friday night, responsible for both of the Caps' goals. Had a team-high seven shot attempts, finished number six on the Caps in five-on-five shot attempt percentage for the game per natural stat trick, and had four hits. But how about the two goals for Ovi in that 2-1 win over the Rangers on Friday night? Each of the Ovechkin goals, a third-period even-strength rebound goal from the low slot right in front of the crease. Each goal, a dirty, grimy, greasy goal. You know, that's usually what you get from like a fourth liner, not from an elite top-line winger like Ovi. But he provided those uh, fourth-line type goals on not one but two occasions on Friday night. Uh, the two goals, by the way, moving Ovechkin, I thought this was interesting, into a tie with Marcel Dion for the fifth most regular season third-period goals in NHL history. Basically, every goal these days that Ovechkin scores marks him climbing some kind of list, and those two goals on Friday night uh, did just that. So the Caps now 27-4 and overall, two games at home this work week against the New Jersey Devils, continuing a stretch of six consecutive games here for the Caps at home. You so far are 2-1-0 and on this six-game homestand. Two games against the Devils Thursday night, Friday night, then a home game Sunday afternoon at noon against the New York Rangers. And we arrive now at the drama, the soap opera that is our Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards! Yes, thank you, Stephen A. So when we last left as the Wizards turn, the Wizards had just defeated the best team in the NBA. Thursday night, a 131-122 win over the NBA-leading Utah Jazz at Capital One Arena, the kind of game that was so typical Wizards, a game that they have no business winning, second game of back-to-back, best team in the NBA is the opposition, and so of course the Wizards end up winning it. They do just enough to lure you into thinking the team is better than the record suggests, only to disappoint you once again. And sure enough, we got that from the Wizards on Sunday night. Wiz fell to 15-26, and a 113-106 loss at the Brooklyn Nets. Wizards losing for the eighth time in 10 games. Now, Wizards are without Davies Bertans for a while here. He did not play due to a right calf strain. The Wizards on Friday announcing that Bertans expected to miss approximately two weeks due to this right calf strain. Bertans been dealing with this right calf here lately. It's been a terrible season for Bertans off him being re-signed to that six-year, $80 million contract during the offseason. He was so good last season. He has been so far from that uh, this season. The uh, Latvian laser we all fell in love with last season, not on display uh, nearly enough so far this year. And you do start to wonder, is this going to be a lost season for Bertans? We'll see. I mean, the announcement only said two weeks, but we know how these things can go with Wizards injuries, where the guy's out for longer than that. And even if he's back within two weeks, 
you know, right calf is a kind of thing. It's been like a nagging thing for Bertans for a while already here. So is this something that just never goes away as the season progresses? Do we never see the Bertans this season that we saw last season? But anyway, no Bertans for the Wizards on Sunday night, but also no Kevin Durant for the Nets. And the Nets are really good. I get that. Second best record in the Eastern Conference as we speak here on this Monday. But Kevin Durant not with the Nets right now, not playing for the Nets right now due to a left hamstring strain. Wizards were actually up by 14 points in the first quarter, began the game on a 26th run, but the Wizards then allowed the Nets to go on a 46-18 run. Wizards went from leading by 14 in the first quarter to trailing by 14 in the second quarter at 52-38. Wizards did end up trailing for the entire second half, though this did become a game. Uh, The Wizards in the fourth quarter got within one at 103-102, but they then allowed the Nets to end the game on a 10-4 run. Now, Scott Brooks, during his virtual post-game press conference late last night, complained about multiple no-calls late in the game. If that sounds familiar, it should. It was two Saturday nights ago, March 13th, that the Wizards lost to the Milwaukee Bucks at Capital One Arena, 123-119. Brooks, during his virtual post-game press conference for that game, angry about new, no, uh, about two no-calls in the final minute of the game with the Wizards trailing by two at 121-119. We talked about that last Monday on this podcast. But also from Brooks in that post-game presser after that loss to the Bucks two Saturday nights ago was the concession that the Wizards had failed to trap the basketball quickly enough. One of the things that happened late in that Bucks loss was no foul being called by the officials as the Wizards are trying to intentionally foul Giannis Adetokounmpo. The Wizards did eventually get called for a foul on Chris Middleton but that came with 9.4 seconds left and more than 15 seconds having elapsed since the Bucks' possession had started. Obviously, not what the Wizards wanted to do. Well, fast forward to Sunday night. The Wizards, again, were guilty of taking too long to foul. Kyrie Irving got a defensive rebound with 21.7 seconds left in the fourth quarter and the Wizards trailing by five at 111-106. The Wizards inexplicably ended up not fouling, all right? They, they ended up fouling Irving until there were 3.2 seconds left. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Yes, that was cuckoo. Irving gets the rebound again with 21.7 seconds left, ends up not being fouled until there are 3.2 seconds left. Cuckoo, cuckoo. Yes, you're down by five. You have to foul. You have to foul with urgency. You have to foul in a declarative nature such that the officials have no choice but to call the foul. And instead, Irving gets the board with 21.7 left. You don't get called for a foul until there are 3.2 seconds left. I don't want to hear about multiple missed calls by the officials late in the game. Brooks, get your team to foul. Foul decisively. Foul quickly. You know, foul with urgency. Play defense with urgency. Imagine that. Wizards, like, seemingly are immune to doing that. They must have gotten some Moderna vaccine or Pfizer vaccine for playing defense with urgency late in these close games. You blew it against the Bucks two Saturday nights ago, and you blew it again against the Nets on Sunday night. Now, do the Wizards end up winning the game if they foul quicker? Probably not. But wouldn't you like to see what would have happened? Didn't happen on Sunday night. That, that That's a terrible reflection on the team. That's also something that reflects very poorly on Scott Brooks. Get your guys to foul quicker. Like, what is so difficult about this? I just don't understand that. Uh, anyway, uh, each team shot the three poorly on Sunday night. Was good on twos. Wizards actually did a pretty good job 
on James Harden and Kyrie. Uh, Harden and Irving finished the game just a 4 of 15 combined on three. So the Wizards, it's not like they got scorched by the beard. It's not like they got scorched by Kyrie. I mean, the big thing for the Wizards in this game was turnovers. Wizards had 19 turnovers to the net seven. And the two big culprits for the Wizards regarding the 19 turnovers were the Wizards' two best players, Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook. They combined for 14 turnovers, including 11 in the first half. Look, Beal had one of his worst games of the season on Sunday night. He was defended very well by the Virginia product, Joe Harris of the Nets. Beal, in 38 minutes, 34 seconds of playing time, just one of three on threes, just five of 12 on twos, finished with just 17 points, finished with just two rebounds, and committed six turnovers. He did have five assists, but that was a bad game for Bradley Beal. And then you look at Westbrook, you know, as a typical Westbrook game, just two of seven on threes, eight turnovers, way too many turnovers, but he did have another triple-double. I mean, this guy with these freaking triple-doubles is is sick. 14 triple-doubles now for Westbrook this season. He is one away from tying Daryl Walker for the Bullets-slash-Wizards all-time lead in career regular season triple-doubles at 15. Westbrook has played for the Wizards for just 34 games. He's one triple-double shy of tying for the all-time franchise mark for career regular season triple-doubles. Westbrook on Sunday night, 29 points, 13 assists, 13 rebounds to go with two steals. But way too many turnovers for Beal and Westbrook. Uh, Rui Hachimura was good again. Boy, he's played well lately. Two of two on three, seven and nine on twos, 20 points and 10 rebounds. Alex Len had a good game on Sunday night. He's been starting here lately. Fifth consecutive game in which he starts. 20 points on eight of 12 shooting, nine rebounds and two blocks. Uh, Scott Brooks has buried Mo Wagner. He's been a DNPCD now for each of the last five games. Continues to bury Troy Brown Jr., uh, DNPCD, for a fourth consecutive game. You didn't get much from Denny Avdia. He, he's, he's struggled here lately. Just uh, 11 minutes, seven seconds of playing time off the bench on Sunday night. Uh, finished the game Avdia did with a game-worst plus-minus rating of minus 18. Uh, you know, look, Wizards made it competitive, fine, but it was another loss. I mean, ultimately, that's what you're looking at here. Eight losses in 10 games. Wizards are 15 and 26, third worst record in the Eastern Conference. Five games now behind the New York Knicks and Charlotte Hornets for the seventh and eighth spots. And the Wizards, they are at the Knicks on Tuesday night at 7.30 and then back at the Knicks on Thursday night at 7.30. So yes, you can say, upcoming for the Wizards, two big games from a standing standpoint in the Eastern Conference. Can you pick up a couple of games here with back-to-back wins at the New York Knicks? And I tell you what, if either game is close and you do need to foul late in the game, how about fouling and fouling quickly? The damn Washington Wizards! We move now to baseball. A week and a half away, are we, from opening day. April 1st, Thursday night, Nationals Park, Nationals Mets. And we know now who the starting pitcher officially will be for the Nationals. Max Scherzer, named by Davey Martinez on Sunday as the Nats 2021 opening day starter. Nobody, of course, is surprised by that, but we had not yet received the official declaration. That uh, declaration now has been given by Davey. He said that during his postgame Zoom press conference following a Max started outing for the Nationals. Uh, Max made his fourth start of the exhibition season on Sunday afternoon, what ended up being a 6-2 Nats loss to the New York Mets. Actually, it was Scherzer versus DeGrom on Sunday afternoon, and Max was not particularly good. Now, I'll sort of uh, emphasize why that was the case in a moment here, but Max uh, gave up four runs in five innings on six hits, including two homers and a double, 
a walk and a wild pitch. But he did have six strikeouts. And he did say during his post-start Zoom presser that the second home run that he gave up, which was a one-out, two-run bomb by Francisco Lindor in the top of the fifth, came while working on a slide step. And, And this is so often what happens in these exhibition games. Pitchers are working on things. So they're not even necessarily like focused primarily on recording outs. They're working on, you know, a new grip. They're working on a new release point. You know, in Max's case, he's working on a slide step. Okay, he happens to give up a homer to Francisco Lindor. Was Max trying to give up a homer? No, but I think the context matters so much. That's why you never overreact, especially when an established guy like Scherzer has a less than stellar outing, as Scherzer did on Sunday. But he is back in there as the Nats opening day starter. It's a big season for Scherzer, as we've discussed. He's going into the final season of that seven-year $210 million contract. He's going into his age 36 season. He's coming off a good 2020, but not a great 2020. Certainly not a Max Cy Young caliber 2020. Max Scherzer in 2020, 12 starts, 67 and a third innings, ERA of 374, ERA plus of 123. For most guys, that's a good year. For Scherzer, it's actually kind of sort of disappointing given the incredible standard that he's established. You know what I think is interesting though about Scherzer being named the opening day starter? is that it comes really without any debate. Uh, a year ago at this time, I think there very much was a discussion of who should be the Nats opening game starter, Scherzer or Steven Strasburg. You had Strasburg coming off having been 2019 World Series MVP. You had Strasburg coming off having been re-signed to a seven-year $245 million deal. I think there was a very compelling case last year for Strasburg to be the opening game starter over Scherzer. This year, it's different. Strasburg made just two starts in 2020 due to the carpal tunnel neuritis. Uh, Strasburg, of course, currently dealing with the left calf strain, so his availability for the start of the regular season is at least somewhat in question, although that is trending in the right direction. And look, I I mean, nobody gets that worked up anymore about who the opening game, opening day starter is, because as the season goes on, just because you start a team's first game, that doesn't mean that you're the team's best pitcher, but there is something symbolic about it, right? And there is kind of a thing of, all right, if you're the opening day starter, that means you are the team's ace, you know, you are the team's number one in the rotation. And I like, if you ask me, you said, okay, who do you feel the best about going into 2021? If you say Scherzer, I don't think you're wrong to say that, but I, I just do kind of find it funny. Like Steven Strasburg is now getting paid more than Scherzer gets paid, $245 million over seven years versus Scherzer, $210 million over seven years. Obviously, Max signing that contract all the way back in January 2015 has a lot to do with that. But like I said, it was Strasburg, not Scherzer, who was the Nats' best, most important pitcher in the 2019 postseason. It was Strasburg, not Scherzer, who was the World Series MVP in 2019. Uh, you could actually make a pretty strong case it should have been Strasburg as the opening game starter uh, for this season if Strasburg is totally healthy, but he hasn't been. And so I think that's a big part of why this ended up not being that much of a conversation. The other big Nats item over the last few days has to do with the bullpen. So we got really bad news on Friday. There's no other way to say this. Will Harris, a reliever for the Nats, diagnosed with a blood clot in his right arm. Uh, first of all, you hope the guy ends up being okay with that. We don't know what this means in terms of what exactly is the ailment here. I think it's almost certain, though, that Will Harris is not good to go for the start of the regular season, and I wouldn't be counting on Will Harris pitching for the Nationals anytime soon, you know? I mean, it it might be like Memorial Day until we see Will Harris. Uh, Will Harris already is an older reliever. He's going into his age 36 season. 
He's a guy who had a very mixed 2020 for the Nats. He had a whip Harris did last year of 1.7, which is not good for a reliever. Uh, Harris was signed by the Nats January 2020 to a three-year $24 million contract, and he came to the Nats having been a very consistent performer over the previous five years for the Houston Astros. Uh, Will Harris, over his five years prior to coming to the Nats, you're talking 2015 through 2019, an ERA at 236 over 297 innings, a whip in that span of 0.987. Like Harris had been quite good and quite dependable, quite consistent for the Astros. And as we talk about with relievers, consistency is not something you get all the time. You know, most of these guys are fickle. They're year to year. Harris had actually been one of those relievers who every season had been good in recent years. Like I said, was very mixed in 2020. And now as an older guy entering year two of this contract is dealing with a blood clot in his right arm. But here's the thing. So you have Harris with his blood clot in his right arm. You have what's been going on with Tanner Rainey. Tanner Rainey dealing with a muscle strain near his right collarbone didn't make his exhibition debut until Sunday. Uh, Rainey pitched in that game against the Mets on Sunday afternoon and did not look good. He struggled. He retired just one of the four batters he faced, was charged with a run, uh, actually struck out the first batter he faced, Pete Alonso but then issued three consecutive walks and was pulled. So Harris hurt. Rainey had been hurt. Doesn't look good in his exhibition debut. You had that mysterious and bizarre Jeremy Jeffress scenario where Jeffress, a guy who everyone thought was going to be making the big league team off having been signed by the Nats to a minor league contract with an invite to Major League Spring Training in February, uh, bizarrely being released from the team on March 7th due to, as Mike Rizzo called it, personnel reasons, and we're still not quite sure what the personnel reasons were, although Mike Rizzo the next day did admit that the personnel reasons uh, had to do with an employment issue and were not related to on-field performance. But whatever the case, a guy who you thought was going to be on the team is not even an option now in Jeffress. And understand this about Jeffress, very up and down, yes, but when he had been up, he had been quite up. Jeremy Jeffress, two of the last three years, had an ERA under two And Jeremy Jeffers had been very good at giving up the home run. Speaking of that, Daniel Hudson, who was so good, as we recall, in 2019, but was so bad in 2020, so far, not so good in this exhibition season. Daniel Hudson, over his first four appearances in this 2021 Grapefruit League season, gave up three homers in four innings. Not good. In 2020, Hudson gave up six home runs over 20 and two-thirds innings not good. The bullpen, my friends, is already a concern. That's the point I'm trying to hammer home here. What we thought might be, if not a position group of strength, at the very least, a position group of depth, a position group of options, doesn't look so deep and doesn't look so options filled right now. Jeffress gone. Harris injured. Rainey on the mend. Not sure where he's at. Hudson, terrible last year. Not looking so good already this year. Now, you do have Brad Hand, and I love that signing by the Nats back in January. One-year, $10.5 million contract. Brad Hand, high strikeout guy, consistent performer for years with the Cleveland Indians and San Diego Padres. Excellent against lefties. A guy who dominates lefty batters, and especially in the National League East, right, with Freddie Freeman, Bryce Harper, et al. You want a reliever who can shut down the lefty batter. Brad Hand can do that. But you tell me, given especially the Nats' history of, shall we say, not having lockdown, shutdown bullpens, how do you feel right now about the state? of this Nationals bullpen. So this is going to be dicey. This is already kind of feeling shaky 
And uh, I would certainly put my money on the summertime tradition like no other in the nation's capital continuing this summer. And that is Mike Rizzo having to make an in-season trade or trades for bullpen help. He has to do it basically every year, whether you're talking about Jonathan Papelbon or Mark Melanson or Sean Doolittle or Ryan Madsen or Brandon Kinsler or Kelvin Herrera, you know, on and on we can go about all the relievers Mike Rizzo has had to acquire in season over the years. I hope Rizzo doesn't have to do that again in 2021, but I don't think anybody's going to be shocked if that ends up having to happen. There was a good development for the Nats regarding the bullpen over the weekend, and that was actually a start by Austin Voth. So Saturday evening, the Nats had a 7-4 Grapefruit League win over the Miami Marlins. Austin Voth made his fifth appearance, but just his second start of the exhibition season. You know, at, at this point, it still looks like Joe Ross is going to be the number five starter. So Voth, if he breaks camp with the team, will do so as a reliever, presumably a long reliever. But Voth looked good in this game against the Marlins. Four scoreless innings with five strikeouts versus one hit a single and three walks. I mean, look, Austin Voth has not been very good so far as a pitcher at the major league level, but uh, they may need him to be good as a pitcher at the major league level if this uh, bullpen uncertainty continues. I mean, both is a higher strikeout guy, uh, 8.4 strikeouts per nine innings over his 105 and two-thirds major league innings over the last three regular seasons. So, you know, if nothing else, both does have uh, that going for him. By the way, the other thing from that Nats-Marlins game on Saturday evening. Did you happen to catch who pitched for the Marlins, one of the many pitchers for the Marlins on Saturday night? Gio Gonzalez. Yes, he is still in the majors. He is now with Miami. Uh, Gio Gonzalez got slammed in this game. Gio Gonzalez got charged with seven runs and recorded just one out in his relief outing. He gave up eight hits, two doubles and six singles, two walks, and a wild pitch. It it was not a good night for the old ex-Nat. The man once known as Nat Gio, uh, Gio Gonzalez, the man who inexplicably was called upon by Dusty Baker to start Game 5 of the 2017 NLDS, something I will never understand given Gio's Game 5 history, given Gio's penchant for gacking in the big spot. I, I, I still cannot wrap my head around that, but anyway... Uh, that guy, Gio Gonzalez, rocked by the Nationals on Saturday evening. One more thing on the Nats. Uh, as you likely know, I do a Nats podcast, the Nats Chat podcast with Mark Zuckerman. Latest installment of that is out as of Monday morning. And the latest installment includes a very insightful conversation with none other than Max Scherzer. Max is a great talker, very smart guy, as basically all of you listening know. But Max is especially good in this conversation talking about the major macro issues facing baseball. Max gets into the pace of play problem. Max gets into the looming CBA Armageddon. Some really good stuff from Scherzer uh, on that. So I would highly encourage you to check that out. Latest installment of the Nats Chat podcast coming out Monday. You can find that podcast wherever you find your podcast, like wherever you find this podcast. Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, etc. And let's talk some Orioles before we call it a show. Another marathon installment, by the way, of the Al Galdi podcast. We are going longer and longer with the show, but that's a good thing. We have a lot to get into here. So uh, the Orioles, like the Nationals, have announced the opening day starter, manager Brandon Hyde on Friday, officially naming John Means as the Orioles 2021 
opening day starter. No surprise there. Uh, John Means is the most established of the Orioles starting pitchers. I know that's not saying a lot, but John Means has actually been a pretty good pitcher for the Orioles over the last few years. Wasn't great last season. Uh, had an ERA plus of just 100 in 43 and two-thirds innings over 10 stars, but Means was quite good in 2019. ERA plus of 130 in 155 innings over 31 games, including 21 starts that season, uh, which he finished with a 4.8 wins above replacement for baseball reference. Had a very good season, Means did, just a couple of seasons ago. Uh, in terms of the rotation for the Orioles, so a bad outing for Dean Kramer on Friday evening. Again, we don't like to read too much into this stuff, but when you're unproven as Kramer is, you do wonder about something like this. Uh, Dean Kramer is one of the guys the Orioles acquired in the Manny Machado trade in July 2018. Kramer on Friday evening, an 11-9 Grapefruit League win for the Orioles over the Pittsburgh Pirates. Five runs in three into third innings on five hits, including a homer and two doubles. Two walks and a wild pitch versus three strikeouts. And he threw just 42 of his 71 pitches for strikes. So just something to keep in mind. I mean, Kramer, Keegan Aiken, John Means, those are considered to be the three staples, the three definites for the Orioles rotation for the upcoming season. But it really matters a lot what Kramer and Aiken do this year because they're two younger arms who you really would like to be a part of the Orioles moving forward. But, you know, obviously you got to earn something like that. Uh, Kramer with a rough outing there on Friday evening. Also over the weekend, Matt Harvey made his latest exhibition start for the Orioles. What was his third start of his Grapefruit League season? That happened on Saturday evening, a 2-1 Orioles win over the New York Yankees. And Harvey looked good. Uh, one run in four innings on two strikeouts versus one hit, a solo homer, one walk, and a hit by pitch. We've talked about this, right? Matt Harvey versus Felix Hernandez versus Wade LeBlanc. You know, three veterans, three reclamation projects the Orioles are undertaking in spring training. Uh, Hernandez, for now, is out with right elbow discomfort. We'll get to LeBlanc in a moment. Harvey, you could argue, has looked the best of the bunch. Now, nobody has looked great, okay? Nobody's been lights out here. But, you know, in this competition, especially for a team like the Orioles, who aren't exactly starting pitching rich, you don't have to be great to make the rotation here. Can you just be confident? And Harvey, I think you could say, has been that. And he did look good in that game against the Yankees on Saturday evening. Uh, With LeBlanc, so he pitched in a relief outing on Friday evening, that Dean Kramer started game. And LeBlanc, uh, he looked good. Uh, one run, unearned in three innings on three strikeouts versus no hits and two walks. Now, the thing with LeBlanc is he threw just 23 of his 45 pitches for strikes. So that's dangerous. That's always kind of a red flag thing of where's this guy at with his control. It was in LeBlanc's second start of the exhibition season, a 5 nothing loss to the Toronto Blue Jays on March 13th that LeBlanc threw just 36 of his 66 pitches for strikes. So LeBlanc's had a hard time throwing strikes so far this exhibition season. That's a major red flag, especially for a guy going into his age 36 season who had an ERA of 8.06 over six starts for the Orioles in 2020. One other thing, though, about that game on Friday evening, uh, for the Orioles and the Pirates. The game featured nine errors, including five by the O's. Nothing says spring training more. Nothing says exhibition season more than Orioles Pirates, two teams going nowhere in 2021, in an 11-9 slugfest in which the two teams combined for nine errors, including five by the winning team. That, my friends, is spring training baseball in a nutshell. Uh, one other Orioles item, and this is not good, uh, has to do with another young player. DJ Stewart has been dealing with a left hamstring injury, and it looks like we're at, or at the very least near, 
kind of put up or shut up time with this injury. Manager Brandon Hyde on Sunday, quote, it's becoming more and more challenging. He was out there doing some drills with us this morning. He's just not 100% yet, and I'm not going to put him on the field in a game until he's 100%. He needs to play in some games before we break. So either DJ Stewart's going to be starting the season on the injured list or maybe just not starting the season uh, with the major league club in uh, in any fashion. I mean, it's, I'm not saying like they're going to cut the guy or anything like that, but DJ Stewart was someone, he's, he's a nice, promising young player. Orioles took him with the number 25 overall pick in the 2015 draft out of Florida State. He's going into his age 27 season. Last year for the O's, over 112 major league plate appearances. He only batted 193, but he had a 355 on base percentage. The guy had 20 walks versus 17 hits. He's got talent, but man, this hamstring injury refuses to go away. He's missed multiple weeks now with the thing. And now his availability for the start of the season very much in question. All right, huge night on Monday night for the Terrapins. A chance for the biggest win to date of the Mark Turgeon era. 10-seeded Maryland, 2-seeded Alabama in Indianapolis. Late nights on Monday night. You know we'll be post-gaming, whatever happens, on this podcast on Tuesday. For now, though, that will do it for you and me. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Subscribe, rate, review. We will, of course, continue to monitor any and all things that happen with our Washington football team. Have a great rest of your Monday. I'll talk to you on Tuesday. Make you mumble.